Heavenly Father, with our voices, we have declared that it is all about Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, as we hear uh, your words proclaimed in this place, we ask that you would be at work in our hearts so that we might be able to truly declare with our hearts uh, that it's all about Christ the work that he's done, the work that he continues to do. And so with that in me, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As a kid, I always had a baseball glove or bat in my hands. When my family lived in Ohio, there was plenty of room in our yard to to play catch, to to hit the baseball with with an aluminum bat. There was plenty of space. But when we moved here in 1995, this was back when the church actually had a parking lot to to your right over here, uh, the parking lot became my backyard. And so that kind of meant that the church was forced into upgrading their window units whenever a ball might happen to find its way through one of the windows. Um, I may have broken close to 10. You'll have to ask Biff or Rudy. They might have a more accurate number as to how many uh, windows were broken. Um, But in those moments where the glass was shattering, my first reaction would be to run. Run fast, run as far as I could to flee from the situation, to to escape from the consequences of my actions. Which is a pretty normal circumstance for someone to flee, right? As, As a kid, when we know we're in trouble, when we know we've done something wrong, we run. However, we often find that this flight mentality occurs even when we haven't done something wrong when we're aware that seasons of stress are coming or we're being asked to do something that we really don't want to do, often our initial human reaction is to run the opposite direction, which, of course, the act of fleeing then becomes the wrong thing to do. But nevertheless, we tend to find that this flight mentality can be our gut reaction. Jonah was a man who was called by God for a specific task who deliberately fled from God's call on his life. And I think if we all looked at our lives, we we would find that there are moments that we can point to where, like Jonah, we have fled or are currently fleeing from God's call on our lives. This morning, I'm going to share a bit with you a little bit of my story. Not the whole story, but, but some of the moments in my life that have led to where I am now. And as I share that story, I want to look at how it parallels the life of Jonah. As well, look at how the text calls us to reflect on our individual and corporate need of a Savior. So if we can get our Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah. Lots of us are already familiar with with this part of the story. I'm going to start from the beginning of the book, uh, reading all of chapter 1. Here now. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. 
Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you be asleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, What have you done? They knew they was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault, that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And this the men greatly feared. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So we know this story pretty well, right? If you grew up going to church, this is probably one of the stories you heard at least once a year on one of those felt storyboards in Sunday school. If you were here with us last week, then you heard Nathan essentially go through um, the, the action of the entire story. But for a brief review, what happens here? Jonah, a prophet of God, is assigned a task to go to Nineveh and to call the people to repentance. We know Jonah doesn't like this task. The the Ninevites were wicked people, and he doesn't want God to show these people mercy. So instead of obeying his calling, Jonah goes the exact opposite direction. It's interesting to see how the text actually conveys Jonah's flight through the use of this continual active downward movement. The text tells us in verse 3 that Jonah went down to Joppa, which is true on a couple of levels. First, on a literal and physical level, Jonah had to go down to the sea level to get to the port. But second, by fleeing God's call, he was moving downward spiritually. If you look at the action in this chapter, you can see that as Jonah continues in his flight, the downward imagery appears four times. In verse 3, he went down to Joppa. In verse 4, he went below the deck of the ship. In verse 15, he's thrown down into the sea. And in verse 17, he's swallowed down into the belly of a great fish. This downward movement isn't a coincidence. It's as if the text is reminding us that as we flee from God, we cannot move spiritually forward. The only place outside of God's plan will move us backward. So a couple of notes regarding the storm. During the storm, the the sailors were praying to their gods, and Jonah was sleeping. But it's Jonah's disobedience that has brought peril, not only to him, but to the others on the boat as well. 
Likewise, in our own lives, our actions have consequences that affect others. And, and that's something that our culture likes to tell us otherwise. It tells us that we should act out of our own thoughts, out of our own desires, out of our own views. And that as long as we're doing what feels best for us or what gets us further, it shouldn't really affect others. But here we see in the storm that results out of Jonah's disobedience, that grave danger is brought to the, soldiers, uh, to the sailors on the boat. So God's dealings with Jonah illustrates that man cannot resist the will of God with immunity. I want to pause briefly and look at this story through a different window. How have I gotten to where I am now, standing here at this moment? As I look back on my life, I have found that moments in my life have paralleled that of Jonah in some fairly significant ways. If you had asked me about five years ago what direction my life was heading, I might not have a definite answer, but I can definitely say that this wasn't exactly in my plan. A good part of my later years of high school, I, I began to feel a nudge towards ministry. Um, and it actually, it was a moment just following my senior year of high school that I truly felt God calling me to worship ministry specifically. I was standing uh, just about in this exact same spot, actually probably where Brian and Erica are, are sitting. And it was a Sunday morning following the worship service. And there is, uh, this was during the couple of years that Redeemer, uh, the Anglican Church down the road, was renting the sanctuary space from Evangelical Congregational Church here. Uh, we were having a joint worship service, and I happened to be leading worship with uh, some members of the Christchurch Senior High Youth Group Worship Band. Following the service, an older woman from the Anglican congregation came up to me and began to ask me some questions about the guitar that I was playing. At the time, I was playing a pretty cheap Fender acoustic electric guitar um, that I had got when I was just learning how to play. Um, I didn't want to buy something expensive if I wasn't going to be good at it. Um, and so I just went with something cheap to kind of learn and see if this was something that, that I would be able to continue. And so uh, I thought she would maybe be considering buying a guitar for a grandchild or someone who was interested in learning. So that's exactly what I told her. I told her it was a, a cheap guitar that does, does the job, but it's not something that uh, a skilled person who really enjoys playing and, and, and plays often would want to play. And so she looks at me and, and says, the entire time during that service, I felt the Lord nudging me to buy you a new guitar. And that is where that guitar came from, a gift from a complete stranger um, that set forth the next steps of my life. And I can tell you now definitively that at that moment, I knew that God was calling me to ministry. So naturally, I was obedient, right? Well, it wouldn't be a Jonah story if that were the case. I don't know if it was the pressure of growing up a pastor's kid or just the fact that I was really looking forward to studying theater at Indiana University and I was already enrolled. So even after this significant moment of direction on my life, I continued on the path that I had already set forth on. So rather than enroll elsewhere, I decided to move forward in attending Indiana University. 
Fast forward to my second semester of my junior year at Indiana. Sarah walks into the picture. And no, not the Sarah that you're all probably thinking of. Not the Sarah that I get to walk through life with now. This Sarah was a year older than me, about to graduate also in the theater program at Indiana. She was a Christian girl, and everything seemed to click in our relationship right away. So in July of 2008, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes, and we started planning for our wedding the following summer. Fast forward to January of 2009. It's my last semester of college. Wedding plans are moving forward. We have a venue, a caterer booked. Uh, She's bought her dress. Things are moving forward. I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, because I was student teaching at a high school on the Indiana-Kentucky border. And so I'm two hours south of school, two hours south of my friends, the roommates that I had lived with for the previous three years, moving to a city that I've never been to, uh, to live by myself. And after being there for two weeks, Sarah makes a surprise, unexpected visit to my apartment. And she had come down to inform me that she wanted to call off the engagement. I was pretty shocked, confused, ashamed, and heartbroken. The very next week, a major ice storm hits Louisville, knocking out power to over 600,000 people, including me. School was canceled for the next week, and so naturally I felt like this would be a great week to drive back up to Indiana to visit with my friends. So I go outside to the road that my car is parked on, and the road is covered with two inches of rock-solid ice. My car is engulfed in fallen tree limbs and branches, and I'm stuck. There was no going anywhere. I was swallowed in my cold, dark basement apartment. To give you a little idea of, of how cold it got, on the third night that I went to bed without power, it was 36 degrees in my apartment. I went to bed wearing double layers of wool socks, two pairs of flannel pajama pants, a t-shirt, a long sleeve t-shirt, a hoodie, a ski cap, and had two down comforters on my bed. It was cold. So here I am, alone in Louisville, Kentucky, broken engagement, no power, stuck in the belly of a dark, freezing cold apartment. So at this point in the story, you might say I'm a little bit like Jonah. My divergence from God's plan on my life was maybe a little less direct than Jonah's complete 180. But nonetheless, I found myself swallowed in a fish belly of my own. But thankfully, the story doesn't end in the belly of a fish. So let's shift our focus to chapter 2, where we hear... Jonah's prayer. So verse 117 says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed this prayer to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. 
all your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. There are a couple major themes in the text um, that are apparent, and we also find these themes echoed throughout Scripture. First, we find the theme of judgment. Judgment which comes as a result of Jonah's direct disobedience to God's command. Jonah's given a command, and instead of following that command, he runs the opposite direction. And, And not only is he fleeing from his duty, the text says he was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And Nathan talked about this last week. This idea of fleeing from the presence of God is foolish. And and Jonah knows this. God is omnipresent. He is always there. He will always follow. But as we see in this storm, it's almost as if God says, Nice try, Jonah, but no. I have sovereign control over all things. And so the storm comes as a consequence of his rebellion. And Jonah recognizes this. And we see this in chapter 1 as as Jonah knows that the storm will calm if he is thrown into the sea. So Jonah recognizes his guilt. And in the midst of this guilt, we have this prayer of distress and thanksgiving in chapter 2. So there's a thematic shift that occurs here. Even more apparent than the theme of judgment the book reveals the mercy of God and shows that genuine fear of God and repentance from sin lead to salvation. This is shown not only later in the book with the people of Nineveh, but as well with the sailors in the storm, as well as Jonah from the sea. And so the second theme here is the grace of God, both individually and corporately. When Jonah sank into the water, he cried out to God, and God answers him by sending the fish. I think a lot of times when we first hear the story of Jonah, we think of the fish as part of the punishment, but the fish more accurately shows God's grace, because out of Jonah's cry of distress as he is drowning in the sea, as the seaweed is enwrapping him, God sends the fish and saves Jonah from what otherwise would be surely death. So there's a lot of encouragement here that God will answer our cries of distress even when we're guilty. Even when God is displeased with us, he will not bring us into some suffering simply for the sake of punishment. God's purpose is redemption. So God does not want us to suffer. But in the midst of our suffering, he desires for us to call out in our distress, to turn to him, to look to him. The Lord is a God of boundless compassion, not just for us individually, 
but for others as well. Notice that God doesn't only save Jonah in this story. He saves the pagan sailors, and he later will show mercy to the Ninevites. And so Jonah's rescue from death provides an analogy for the resurrection of Christ. And the repentance of the Ninevites anticipates the wide-scale repentance of the Gentiles to come. As I was beginning my sermon prep several weeks ago, Tim Keller, a well-known pastor in New York, um, tweeted the following, saying, Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. And it's Jesus, we recall, that first brings our attention to uh, the sign of Jonah. Um, Nathan mentioned this last week, and uh, we find this in Luke chapter 11, and I'm going to read this briefly, and we'll let Mike expound on it further when we get there. But uh, in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. On the sign of Jonah and Christ, one scholar writes, We can imagine reading the sign of Jonah as Jesus read it, redemptively. There is the casting of lots in the Jonah story and the casting of lots at the crucifixion. Jonah is cast into the raging sea for it to become peaceful. Christ is cast onto the raging cross to become peace itself. Jonah is swallowed up by a fish three days in its belly, and Christ is swallowed up by death three days in its grip. Jonah performs a sacrifice of praise to the Lord out of the belly of Sheol. Christ releases the captives from the dead, himself the sacrifice of praise. The Lord releases Jonah from the belly of the fish and raises Christ from the dead. Jonah gets up, preaches destruction, the city repents, God saves Nineveh. Christ is raised from the dead, preaches repentance and the forgiveness of sins, saving the world. Again, we'll let Mike expound on that further when we get to this passage. But for now, it's sufficient to say that the story of Jonah directs us to understand God's grace on a much larger scale. The book of Jonah prompts us to engage in theological reflection on the compassionate character of God and in self-reflection on the extent to which our lives reflect this compassion to a broken world. That week that I spent stranded in my apartment was hands down the most influential week of my life. When I look at that prayer of Jonah in chapter 2, I recognize the exact same desperate plea of distress that Jonah had. I was forced to sit in complete isolation. And I spent this time in isolation the only way that made sense to me. And that was in prayer and reading God's word. I was confused. I was broken. And had no idea what to do next. I went from having the next few years of my life planned out to having no idea where I was going to go after graduation. But 
I got all of the answers that I needed in three days and three nights of solitude. I could see precisely the areas of my life in which I was fleeing from God's plan for me. First of all, once again, I was postponing God's plan on my life. See, my fiancé wanted to pursue a career in acting in Los Angeles, and so rather than go straight into seminary after college, I was planning on finding a teaching job out in L.A. so that I could support us and, and, and that we would be fine and she would be able to uh, pursue her acting career. And so this meant postponing the prospects of seminary for at least several years, but to be honest, at that point in time, ministry had really become an afterthought. And at one point or another, I put her plans for my life over God's plans for my life. And as strange as it may sound, I received an overwhelming amount of comfort from God revealing that to me. In the midst of that storm, I felt that God was actually saving me from something that could have become far worse. I remember sharing that story with a friend of mine, and upon completing that story, he paused and said, Wow, sometimes God's refusals are his greatest mercies. And I think we can find that often to be true. This was certainly the true, this was certainly true for me. And we can see how this was true for Jonah as well. God refused to let Jonah run. He refused to let Jonah die in the midst of the storm. And through Jonah, he brought repentance to the Ninevites. We all have a bit of Jonah within us, and and most of us have a lot of Jonah within us. And so what does that mean for us? I think if we're completely honest, we all have Ninevehs today in our life that God is calling us to and we are trying to run from. And so what qualifies as your Nineveh? Is it the place that God calls you and you don't want to go? Is it the friends that have abandoned you? Is it the people that have left you broken? Is it the people who have hurt you deeply? And either way, God's call is go. So when we understand that we are like Jonah, we recognize our deep need for a Savior. But we're also reminded that as Jonah points us to Christ, that that need has already been met. And so if you're currently fleeing or you find yourself stuck in a storm, I encourage you, in your distress, call out to the Lord. For he is compassionate. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed a merciful God. We are thankful that you are a God who even in the midst of our guilt, that we can call out in distress to you, And know that you are faithful to forgive. We thank you for Christ, for the work that he has done on the cross, and for the salvation that we can have through placing our trust in him. And so God, in light of the mercy that you bestow upon us, may we therein show that mercy to a world that is desperately in need of it. 
Father, help us to be the church, not only within these walls, but within our community that you have placed us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.